the Smiths, and these things take time from the album Hat Full of Hollow. I'm David Eastall, and this is The C86 Show. Hello, and welcome once again to another epic slice of life as I spin the wheels of steel. This week, our special guest is the one and only American singer, songwriter, author, best known for her solo work, as well as with her rock bands, Throwing Muses and 50 Foot Wave. Yes, it's the one and only Kristen Hirsch. So I'll be bringing you the interview throughout the show because it's very epic and intense, and I think you'll love it. Plus, um, lots of music by... Kristen, as well as uh, from her band Thrower Muses, and with a few other tracks from um, other outfits that you all sort of love. You either love them now or you'll love them at the end of the show. But anyway, all I want you to do, stay tuned, turn up your stereos and enjoy the next 60 minutes because it's going to be quality music. This is Buzz.
Yes, the one and only Huskadoo and the track called I Don't Want to Know If You're Lonely from the album Candy Apple Grain. Obviously, we're still sort of reeling from the news that uh, Grant Hart, drummer and also the the writer of that particular song, passed away a few weeks ago. And obviously, Huskadoo, one of the uh, soundtracks to my life and possibly yours as well. Who knows? Anyway, and before that, we had Throw Muses and the track called Buzz. And um, if you have just joined me, or you might have been there at the beginning, you'll know that this week's special guest is the uh, one-time member of Throw Muses. I don't know if they're still going, actually. But definitely the uh, singer-songwriter, Kristen Hirsch, um, because I caught up with her a few weeks ago to find out more about life, love and poetry and that sort of stuff as well. So I'll be bringing that interview very soon because there's quite a bit of it, actually, and um, it was difficult to edit bits off and bits out. So I thought, well, we'll play more of the interview and probably have a few less a bit of some, um, few less tracks throughout the show. So what I'm going to do is play another track by Kristen and um, then we'll hear the first part of the interview. Anyway, um, it was so difficult to find out. Um, well, put together... The, a playlist for this particular song, um, particular show, because there was just so much to put in. But um, this is one of those ones that I think you'll like. This is Like You. Excuse me, a doormat's good, honest work. Yes, indeed. There you go. That is um, from the album Strange Angels, and that's the second track on side one. And that was like you, and that was obviously Kristen Hirsch. And as you gather, this is um, this is going to be the Kristen Hirsch show um, because I caught up with her a few weeks ago. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C eighty six show. And if you'd like to contact me, we do like your messages. You can on via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C eighty six show, and I'll be there. And we always love your messages. But anyway, because there's quite a bit of this interview, and um, 
um, it was hard to edit much out, I thought, well, we'll um, start it early, just in case I run out of time. So this is the first part, and this is the um, bit where I talk about the early years when they, uh, when she was uh, forming the Pixies and the relationship with 4AD Records that we loved back in the 80s, because everything that was on 4AD, we went and bought. This is it. Um, absolutely. It was really Ivo Watts Russell, the, the man, um, that our relationship was with. And we, my bandmates and I lived in an apartment together. We were teenagers in Boston and we couldn't afford a phone for a long time. Right. And when we got a phone, um, I was the shyest band member and swore I would never I would never use it so I would just watch it ring all the time and <laughs> not do anything about it and once I just got sick of listening to it ring and I picked it up and it was Ivo calling to say that he had a British record company and didn't sign American bands but he loved our demo and I thought alright <laughs> bye <laughs> That was fantastic. The next day, the phone rang again, and we just started talking about anything because we didn't sign American bands, so we just talked about stupid stuff. And we we did that every morning for about a week, and then he sent a contract and said, "Right, I sign American bands now." Right. Well, I know that 4AD was one of those record labels in the UK that you one became quite interested in anything that came out because they had a certain style. There was people like the Copto Twins and Dead Can Dance, and obviously then you had, you know, Throw Muses as well, which was great. I had never heard of 4AD, to be honest. I thought that he was pretending to have a record label and was just calling and hoping one of the pretty girls in the band would answer the phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. And... <clears throat> He uh, he shared music only after um, we made our record with him, and I thought, what are we doing here? That's <laughs> all so pretty. <laughs> We're so gross. <laughs> and also, I couldn't I really mean... see the connection. Well, that's why I brought the Pixies, too, so we weren't alone anymore. Yes. And also, it was around that late 80s period that you played Glastonbury as well, because I can remember seeing you, I think it was 89, when you did a Glastonbury sort of festival, when it was a heat wave. I have absolutely no idea. It was just numbers. Just... I remember, I think it may have been the one where I forgot all the lyrics. <laughs> Fantastic. I went out, and my guitar had dropped half a step. Um, it had detuned in the rain, but my uh, bass player's bass had not. And so we were half a step off and about 30 feet away from each other, not being able to figure out what was going on. So I'm trying to play half a step up and he's trying to play half a step down. And it blew all the lyrics out of my head. I played one long instrumental with my drummer's lips moving a million miles an hour because he knows all the lyrics. And um, I was just shaking my head and we ended the first song as an instrumental. And I was like, all right, now we're going to finish this up the set. But all the lyrics were gone. <laughs> so I stepped <laughs> off stage after doing an entire set of instrumental throwing music songs. Excellent. And uh, this journalist said, that was so interesting. All the other bands played the songs as they are on the record. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. But we got great reviews. You certainly did, and um, I think it was in either 88 or 89 when I saw Throw Muses, who were um, headlining at the UEA in our double bill with the Pixies as the support band. Yes, the 80s. It was slightly grim at times, but uh, fantastic music. Anyway, um, there's still four more parts of that interview to go, and I think we'll play another track. This is another one from the Throw Muses. This is Sunray Venus.
That's the uh, Throne Muses and the track called Sunray Venus. And that was from their album Purgatory Stroke Paradise. And um, I was just doing a bit of research because I do like the facts. And um, I sort of wanted to know when the Throne Muses and the Pixies were at the UEA. And that was on the 30th of April, 1988. There you go. Only 30 years ago. Well, nearly. But um, what a gig. What a moment. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show. And as I said, this week's special guest is the American singer-songwriter uh, Kristen Hirsch. And this is the second part of the interview where I talk about or ask her about how the band formed. This is the Throne Muses, by the way. We're from an island, so... We sort of only knew each other anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have anything to do. You're either a surfer or you have a band, and we didn't surf. <laughs> yes. And I just wonder, you know, because with both, with a lot of bands that I've been interviewing, there is this kind of interest in five-year arc, where this is, you know, to do with the independent scene in, in the UK, where, you know, people sort of, for various reasons, you know, mostly because out of boredom and, and having not, not much else to do, sort of form a band, or they did in the 80s, and then they made a bit of a sound that he liked, managed to get the, the, get on to the John Peel show, which was kind of the one that, you know, he played a lot of alternative stuff and interesting stuff. Then they did that sort of the album and the tour and then and then after that they had that tricky album the second album and also sort of dynamics with themselves and the band uh, with the management as well so how how did the throne muses kind of relationship develop over those years we had a the sense that we were working in a vacuum having come from an island and um having that island mentality where you just sort of walk in circles and eventually get to where you're going. It didn't it didn't lend itself to focusing on the outside world. And not for me personally. Right. And I was the band leader in writing the material and so the material reflected that and our machinations behind the scenes reflected that. Um and ultimately I could not fit the I'm going to use the word art and apologize for it. Yes. <laughs> the, the art that I wanted to bring about, I couldn't make it work with Warner Brothers or American Label. Um, I just, I found it so depressing, so toxic, the ego, bimbo, music that sucks world, which you can now see in politics. You can see everywhere. It's It's a hungry ghost and it's, it's not in alignment with goodness or soul or intelligence or anything that I believe in. So I extricated myself from the recording industry and um, I bought us out of our contract and I just wanted to do the right thing by music and not play the game. And if nobody ever heard it, it's okay because it's good. It's I'm just not going to do fashion shoots and write stupid radio songs and just uh, they they almost killed me trying to get me to do that literally yeah. and uh, I wanted to live in a, a in better fashion an honest life and so my drummer who is my has been my best friend since we were eight years old would come and visit my baby and play with them and he would listen to my four track. Um, where I was putting all the songs, just kind of playing for heaven, as it were, and, um, and my husband, and that's it. And Dave would listen, sit with the headphones on, playing with the baby, and we were kind of you know, doing the right thing, being good people. And he said, you know what, why don't we just 
be good in the, the business. Just admit that we don't care. And if they call us failures for that, at least it, it could help somebody looking for this soundtrack. So that's what we did. And uh, we've been that trio uh, for, I don't know, 25 years or something where we just work in the corner of the business. And if it helps somebody who needs this soundtrack, then great. But it's not for everyone, and we don't play the game. Yes. Well, it was interesting because I sort of, you know, having interviewed a lot of these bands, there was almost a sort of sense that people didn't really want to, uh, very similar to what you said, actually. They they almost looked at, if, if we would sell too many records, we'd almost look at that as a failing because we were obviously slightly doing something wrong in the sense of probably being compromising what we're doing and not probably enjoying it. You should be very suspicious of your last move if you suddenly see success. Because of the way the music business is set up, sorry, I call it the recording industry. There is a sub-music business that is um, full of people who care, and it trickles down to radio, um, you know, record companies, management, videographers, uh, engineers, producers, photographers, it's happening. It's just necessarily underground because it's not stupid. (laughs) No one is going to put the money into selling it. So if if you are suddenly back and you see the kind of success that uh, can only be bought, you should question your motives and your material. Uh, That's sad, but it's true. So true. There you go. That's the second part of my interview with uh, Kristen Hirsch. So I've still got three more bits and it does get much more exciting and in-depth. So we'll play another track. This is from her solo album, um, Hips and Makers, Your Ghost. Take it away. If I walk down this hallway tonight, it's too quiet. So I head through the dark and call you on the phone. Push your old numbers and let your house ring till I wake your ghost. Let him walk down your hallway. It's not this quiet. Slide down your receiver, sprint across the wire. Follow my. It's the blaze across my nightgown It's the phone's ring I think last night You were driving circles Driving circles around me. I think last night you were driving circles around me. I can't drink this coffee till I put you in my closet. Let him shoot me down. Let him call me off. I take it from his whisper You're not that tough It's the blaze across my nightgown It's the phone's ring You were last night You were driving circles Last time. 
Extraordinary stuff. There you go. That is um, from the album Hips and Makers. That was Christine Hirsch and the track called Your Ghost. And it also features on backing vocals the one and only Michael Stipe. He of R.E.M. So there you go. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 show, bringing you the finest in indie pop. I used to say the uh, from the golden decade that was the 80s, but this time the, the music's all over the decades. But anyway, um, this is the third part of my interview um, with Kristen, where we talk about, um, I suppose, about popularity. And also there was that moment that uh, David Bowie said that he knew things were going wrong in the 80s when he was sharing the same audience as Phil Collins, which he realised he needed to do something about. Anyway, take it away, Kristen. But you're going to alienate some if you're a step ahead. Yes. And you need to be a step ahead because music is. Otherwise, you're writing from your ego perspective, and uh, no one needs to hear that. That's smaller than music. You should stay smaller than music and let it talk. And yeah, it's going to confuse some people, but it's also going to save some people. Yes. And it's interesting because, again, the, one, the other thing that I've really noticed is a lot of people having sort of had their hearts and souls crushed by the music industry in the last five years have started coming back and sort of looking in the cupboard and finding their old guitar or drums or microphone and sort of old lyrics and th- and feeling a little bit tempted to play again and are just really enjoying it but instead of looking at the record you know looking at sort of what they did in the past and repeating it they've they've kept it much more of a diy thing and just wanted to keep it much more sort of as a normal part of their life rather than becoming this kind of peculiar pop star character that's such a good point and it's a nuanced one it's it's where you begin when you pick up an instrument you don't think anyone's gonna listen and you certainly shouldn't be hoping for that or even wanting that you should be celebrating the instrument itself um and finding its its textures and its moments. There is zeitgeist. It, you know, there is style that is substantive. It's it's just that uh, people who are I want to call them dummies, and that sounds really mean. So I'll say they're more ego bound. Among us are easily fooled. They love marketing. They love being marketed too. They love style, and. Um, Substance is going to rub them the wrong way. So you can spin your style. Like obviously, I engage in production methods, and that is style. Yes. But it's when it's right, it's health and it's beauty and it's timeless. It's sort of the way I raise my children. Um, they are in a moment, but they're not of the moment. They're not trapped. They are healthy. Has there been periods within your career that you've found it really difficult to be motivated to create anything? I've never been motivated to create anything. (laughs) (laughs) I only heard songs and copied them down. And if I had anything to do with it, they would suck a little bit. And if I had a lot to do with it, they'd suck a lot and they would be dead songs. The living ones came from somewhere else. I know that sounds really groovy, but it's as close as I can get to describing the experience and um, I was in the last couple of years I was treated for PTSD and the an unusual side effect of the treatment was to, uh, to reveal a, an alternate personality I had there was never uh, anything um, I had never had any mental illness even though I had been misdiagnosed a few times, uh, it was a coping and survival mechanism that turned, that was just music. And that was my alternate personality, like Sybil, except it was just Kristen and music. So I had no memory of having written, recorded, or performed any, performing any music. And, uh, except like between the songs, you know, or if something went wrong, I would be there. I would be Kristen again on stage, not knowing what I was doing there. Like I, described like forgetting all the lyrics that was Kristen because she doesn't know the lyrics right. um, and when that integration was complete that means I 
you know, I have no no disorder of any kind. I'm completely healthy, but and I no longer hear music because I don't need to. So I may not write songs anymore, uh, and I never really did. I just I just heard them, and I don't hear them anymore. The projects I'm working on were all begun before this. So yeah. I'll see. It could be that now when I walk into the studio, I just know how the songs go, but I haven't tried that yet. It's a complex world, the creative process. Anyway, that is the third part of my interview with Kristen Hirsch. And I've still got another two parts to go, but back to the music. And this again from the album Hips and Makers. This is Sundrops. Yes, nothing wrong with that. There you go. That was Sun Drops from Kristen Hirsch. And now this is the fourth part of my in- fourth part of my interview with her, where we talk about the uh, tour that she's got coming up with Tanya Donnelly in the next couple of months, as well as lots of other exciting things. Yeah, I just uh, finished a 
I guess the tour was about a year and a half long of my last record, Wyatt at the Coyote Palace, which took five years to make. So it was during this process of integration. And um, songs are alive. They they are real. They're like entities walking in, like a person. They have potential. They change. You're excited to see the nice ones, and you sort of cringe when the the harsh ones walk in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm living very uh, congruently with the music, uh, and I can tour and play, and um, but I haven't yet made a record uh, with a fully integrated personality. Yes, I mean, I mean, it sounds like an extraordinary experience and, and position to be in. I guess. I just get, I'm normal now, and that's very clean and clear, and it's what I always wanted. I I didn't like when people associated music with mental illness. I knew there was something they weren't getting about that, and I, I, I guess it's the idea that there'd be some sickness at play when really you're looking for clarity, and beauty is not pretty. It's It's often what we would call ugly in real life, but it's necessary. And I still live by that, and yes. I live better for that. I'm just not sure what the process has become, if anything. And obviously, you don't. You sound like you're you're completely comfortable because you sound like you're in a much more of a grounded, happy place. I guess it would not be my choice to complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> there may be something terribly wrong. <laughs> Yes. I love music. You know, it's my religion. Uh, I I suspect it's just a completely different process. There is no darkness at play. Even if the music is dark, I, I think it's a truly healthy response to living on this planet. I know, it's such an interesting time in our lives as well. Which is... uh, yeah, my poor little boy was just saying it. It seems like the apocalypse. Am I making that up? Do all little kids do this? Like, actually, yes, all little kids do this, and yet it does seem like the apocalypse. <laughs> Sorry, I mean. Yes, this is true. I mean, and also, it's, it's uh, you know, one thing that I've also noticed with, with age and the aging process myself is that, you know, we, going through different phases, you know, one's coping with one's parents getting old. And then there's also moments in one's own life. Like last year I got diagnosed with, with um, you know, cancer, which was like, oh, my God, you know, it came out of the blue and they did an operation and that should be OK. But now I'm in the world of hospitals and scans every six months and, you know, having all that kind of... Um, I suppose a whole new world has opened up to me. I understand about sort of MRI scans and CAT scans and and all that, you know, morphine drips and like... So it is kind of, it is kind of interesting, the the aging process and sort of looking at the different decades. You know, like the, what you feel like in your twenties is quite distinct, and then the thirties, the forties, and then getting into the fifties. I mean, have you, you know, do you sort of ever reflect back on those different decades? I do. What I come up with generally is that it's all cyclical. You just gain more and more empathy the more stories you live. I went through the cancer thing, too, um, in the last couple of years with surgeries and all that, and I found it very interesting, and I, I certainly didn't care a whole lot. <laughs> they thought I was a rock. I was like, no, I just, just don't care. I, I'm interested to know how this is for people. And I, when I was uh, 16, I was uh, in a car accident, lost a leg in my face, and it was in a wheelchair for... Uh, six months crutches for a year and um, I had sort of the same reaction. I didn't care about I guess I never got the why me thing. It was too interesting. It's like, oh, so this is what it feels like when your leg comes off and you put it back on and I never would have known. Now I know what it's like for people when they do this and so the more cycles of that that you go through, you could measure decades by, oh, this cycle, now I've lived this story, and now I know how it feels. And so the empathy you gain is not not for someone who then goes through what you went through, because that can't quite happen. It's it's that people go through things. And, and you look at, like, the, in Mexico, just a couple of days ago, there was an 8.2 uh, quake that... 
you know, just in, in 85, Mexico City quake killed almost 10,000 people. And so, you know, bad stuff happens when the earth shakes down there. And it's a quiet story right now. People don't care a whole lot. But you, if you have gone through enough cycles of empathy, you, you have respect for a story you don't even know yet. If that's the aging process, then right on. Indeed. Yes, there you go. That was the fourth part of my interview with Kristen Hirsch. I've just got one more part. But before we hear from that, this is Throwing Muses from a very early album. This is Dizzy. There you go, that is Early Throw Muses and the track called Dizzy, and that was from the album Hunk Papa. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show, nearly bringing it up to the hour. But anyway, my last part of the interview with Kristen Hirsch, and this is where we talk about random, randomness and vulnerability and general chaos. Take it away. Yes, yeah, there's, there's chaos at play that sort of relieves the burden of chaos. It's not a panic, it's a... It's a balancing the unbalancing. You know, yeah. if, if all you can rely on is your the will that's holding your atoms together, then what is there to panic about? This is true. 
And um, and obviously, you know, coming sort of in a couple of months' time, you've got, you know, a date. Is this with uh, Tanya Donnelly? Yes. And, um, I mean, do those kind of events excite you? Do you feel sort of um, happy to be sort of in the, that position or place that sort of puts a, a, a sort of a, quite an intimate gig on? Um, I have stayed on the road for about 30 years. <laughs> so I'm not excited, but... I I'm still very shy. Um, that I I know how to do my job and I can walk into a club and I make friends and I respect the the workers because they do this every night too. And when I start to play, I remember why I was born. Right. So maybe that's excitement. It's sort of like, you know, why are you here? You should maybe ask yourself that, <laughs> and then. If you can, um, if you can step into the role that, that you're you're here for, and especially if it could help anybody, then yes, that, it's, it's not really excitement. It's like feeling grounded. Do you feel like this is the purpose given to you, sort of almost from on high? Well, I can't think of any other reason I might have been born. <laughs> That's really a better way of putting it. <laughs> I didn't come up with anything better. I can barely go to the grocery store. I'm so shy. But um, I'm a I'm a kind person, and this is as kind as I can be. Maybe that's it. And obviously, you realise that your your music that you've made with both the band and and the solo artist. I mean, it has it does have an impact on on the listener, and it does sort of mean an awful lot to them as well. It, it actually does seem to. I don't think we're a this is love or hate material, but it's like love or ignore material. (laughs) People care a lot when they care. It's not background music. I've heard people try to put it in TV shows and movies and they say it's too distracting. (laughs) And, and I've had publicists say, "I, I can't work with this. You have no demographic. And that combination of, uh, criticism, <laughs> I take as maybe scars, but badges of honor. You should not have a demographic, obviously. I shouldn't be writing for straight white females. Yes. <laughs> and um, you you should be distracting. You shouldn't be paced. Like, we're, not, we're not here to, to blend in any other way except at a very deep level. What would you say, with all your experience and, and um, life, what would you say to your 18-year-old self starting out in music or just starting out in life? I think the only thing I would have changed was to be better at editing. I think that there's a streamlining process to uh, honest output that results in a more refined product that could speak to almost anyone. I think I was initially far too alienating, and people will say, well, that means it's art. But, and it was, but you don't have to spew. You you spew, and then you edit. And that's, that's craft. Uh, you know, inspiration is uh, a kind of hungry ghost, and, and you need to sort of rein it in. There's... Um, the id is is powerful and important, but the super ego is lovely. It's um, it's light and it's spiritually sound. And as long as you can erase the ego in the middle, then um, you can have output that could really uh, resonate with many different kinds of people. And it's like the um, the publicist who was giving me grief about having no demographic quoted a village voice preview of one of my shows that said attends just to see the bizarre cross-section of humanity that will go to a Kristen Hurst show. And I thought, well, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> but initially, I, I did have a demographic. And yeah. I'm, I'm proud that I shook it off. Well, I'm pleased you did. Anyway, thank you ever so much, Kristen Hirsch, for giving me the time for that interview. Um, Much appreciated. And um, this brings me right to the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Eastor on the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Twitter or Facebook. Go to at C86 Show and I'll be there waiting excitedly. Anyway, 
one more track and then that's the end of the show this is me and my charms have a great week Go out, I pick the angel up.